as artificial intelligence continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation that we can't ignore, AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. With over 750 specialized hackers in their community, HackerOne isn't just theorizing. They're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large organization, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI dash safety dash security. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI dash safety dash security. This episode is supported by Trustonomy, an original podcast from OneTrust. Every good relationship you have, personal or business, it involves trust. But we all know that trust doesn't just happen, right? We've all lost trust in a friend or a brand or a product. Trustonomy is a new podcast that looks at true stories from the past to understand how trust works and what makes it stronger and how to rebuild it when it's broken. Now, you know, I'm a sucker for a good podcast that weaves historical stories and relates it to what's happening today. So I thoroughly enjoyed this Trustonomy episode and recommend that you check that out as well. Search for Trustonomy in your podcast player. We'll also include a link in the show notes. Many thanks to the OneTrust team for their support. This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. Michael, let me play out a scenario for you. Okay, let's let's hear it. Well, let's take our podcast, for instance, Rocketship.fm. I know we're soon going to be working on an upcoming season, season seven. That's right. Uh, that should be out for listeners, I guess, this fall. And as soon as it is, we'll we'll be working on what we're coming up with for season eight and what that's all about, right? Yeah. No, that's true. We will. What if I suggested that season eight should be exclusively about customer roadmaps? Roadmaps. Well, yeah, that's kind of interesting. I mean, we can definitely talk about it. I I don't know if that's what we should base the entire season on, but I suppose it's possible that, uh, I don't know, we, it's, we could consider it. All right, fair enough. But 
let me ask you this. What if I were to say that I actually had the data to show that a podcast season on customer roadmaps would unequivocally equate to doubling our listener base, which of course increases our revenue earning potential from sponsors and would vault us into the coveted best of lists that Apple and everyone else has together for podcasts. Um, yeah. Okay. Roadmaps it is. <laughs> I had a feeling you'd say that. You don't actually have that data though, do you? Uh, no, of course I don't. <laughs> <laughs> and I- I'm not so sure that that is where we should go with the season, but I-, I just bring it up to make a point. I want to point out an example of how powerful data can be. I take that's what today's episode is all about. <laughs> you got it. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka, and I'm Mike Belsito. A while back, I caught up with Richard White, the CEO of User Voice, and somebody I've gotten to know these past few years. We actually talked about the notion of what it means to be data-informed. It sounds like the right person to talk to. Um, User Voice has been around for over 10 years and has been a SaaS platform that is always focused on helping companies collect and better understand data from their customers. And we actually interviewed Rich maybe, I don't know, four or five years ago, too. Listeners can go back and check that out if they like. Uh, Yeah, definitely, for sure. So customer data, really there are two different types of data that exist. Let's break them down a bit before we get into the chat with Richard White. There's quantitative data and qualitative data. Yes, quantitative data, you could think of that as sort of numbers driven. Uh, We're running reports on usage, viewing analytics. That's all forms of quantitative data. Uh, And qualitative data, we could think of that as words. You know, you sit down with customers to interview them, ask them questions. Their answers are really a form of qualitative data. And which would you say is better than the other? Well, I don't know if I have the data to back up an answer one way or the other. (laughs) You had to go there, didn't you? I did. I did. Uh, No, but in all seriousness, I, I think there's a place for both. I mean, they actually both have their advantages, but also drawbacks too. Um, And, you know, here is Rich, where he starts to talk about how qualitative data sometimes gets looked down upon a bit. Uh, I think qualitative feedback generally gets a, it's like a dirty word in most companies, because it tends to be kind of this like, it's a low volume, squeaky wheel, vocal minority kind of thing. Um, And I think when done well, uh, qualitative feedback actually looks like a significant data signal. Uh, especially in B2B environments like ours. In a B2C environment, obviously, obviously there's always the, if you can guess and bucket test your way into product success, then that's that's great. You should absolutely do that. But most people I talk to that work in product, we don't have the volume, right? You've got to have, you know, really large scales, uh, volume of, of traffic and, and usage for guess and bucket tests to be kind of the end-all, be-all way to do things. For a lot of us, it's, we have some behavioral stuff we can look at, but then we have a lot of qualitative signals but like I said, often we don't have enough. You know, not having a volume of qualitative feedback means it ends up being that dirty word in most of our companies. So we've spent, I've spent the better part of the last 10 years kind of working on various methodologies to both gather all of that feedback and then try to figure out how to package it up uh, in a way that we can think about it as data. And so that's why I always like to think of this as like data-informed decision-making. But the data set often is not only just behavioral, but a lot of it's qualitative. We could probably spend an entire episode on the comparison of qualitative data and quantitative data, and maybe we will sometime. Maybe that's season eight. But I think it's fair to say that there's absolutely a place for using both forms of data 
on our customers. For sure. It's just important to use the data in the first place. Which doesn't always happen. It happens less than it should. I mean, think about all the decisions that a product person has to make in a given week. All the meetings they get pulled into, the answers that they're being looked to, to give on a wide variety of things, really. It's a lot to manage, that's for sure. Yeah, and it, it should be the case that each decision made is data-informed and we have the numbers or the interviews to, to back it up. But sometimes it just doesn't happen that way. Sometimes we're actually not using data to make those decisions. You can make good decisions with data. You can make good decisions without data. Data can sometimes be considered a, a, a nice-to-have, especially in, in environments where there isn't a bunch of, there's a lot of accountability for making the wrong decisions. I also like the phrase data informed as opposed to data driven. In that guess and bucket test environment, you should absolutely be data driven. The, the, the numbers kind of bear out, right? Like, oh, we've got you know, this amount of lift on conversion by doing this. Great, that's data driven. I think in a lot of our environments, it's data informed. You know, part of why we don't do it though is it, it, it can be time consuming. The data isn't comprehensive enough, right? So <clears throat> again, I think in a lot of our companies, behavioral signals don't tell me everything. You know, I don't have enough volume. You know, just, I don't have enough users. Right? You need thousands and thousands of users to get behavioral signals that are useful. Um, or two, behavioral signals may not tell me everything. For example, I think in you know, a lot of B2B companies, you could have people that use your product day in, day out, and then one day they just they, they churn, and you don't understand why, right? Because usage does not equal satisfaction right, in a B2B environment, the same way it does in gaming and things like that. So you're left with, you know, if those, those are most easily accessible data signals where you can just plug in a widget and get it. The other stuff is harder to get. I don't think most product teams I talk to have a very good process for how to mine that stuff and how to bundle it together. So thus we're kind of left doing this a lot. And frankly, without data, we end up having a lot of like emotional debates with higher ups about what we should build and not build. So it's kind of this like vicious cycle where a lack of data leads to anecdotal emotional driven you know, decision making, which leads to more anecdotal emotional driven decision making. Company life cycle and maturity matters a lot too. Right at an early stage, it's hard to make any decisions with data, right? Early stage product development, customer development is talk to 10 people, hope there's 10,000 people like them and go build what those 10 people want. And so I think that at some point, the company has to switch and start saying, okay, we need to start being more operationally focused, not just shooting from the hip and talking to whoever the CEO talked to last. And I think the reason why we don't work with data is because a lot of product is still driven by that ad hoc model. Salespeople just came back and talked to three people on the conference floor. We've got to now do this thing. But stage matters, right? Basically, the more mature you are, the more likely this is something that's worth doing. So yes, we should all be using data to inform our decisions. Sometimes it doesn't happen that way. But Rich brought up two interesting things here. He talked about the need for a good process. And also, he called them emotional debates with higher ups about what should and shouldn't be built. Yeah, and we could go a little deeper on, on both of these points, actually. Yeah, let's start with process. Process, the <laughs> ugly four-letter word for many entrepreneurs. Um, it's, it's not four letters. I know, but it <laughs> might as well be. Process, it's sort of the, well, at least for me, it's been the bane of my existence uh, and for other entrepreneurs. But I, I don't know. I, for me, I just, I don't like getting bogged down in process. I want to like get moving, take action right away. I want to start doing things. I get it, but... But it is necessary to have good processes in place for sure. And, and especially if you're in that product manager role, I mean, it could definitely hurt you to not have good processes in place. Mm -hmm. uh, and Richard actually does talk about the importance of this a bit. 
and also finding the time to make a process that works for you. It's kind of like an investment you have to make into building a process that, that gathers you the day in the first place, right? If you're fortunate enough to be in that B2C environment, the investment you make is you drop in a line of JavaScript somewhere in your app and you wait 24 hours and here we go, database is populated. But for a lot of us, we have to go convince the rest of our org that this is a process we should build. The good news is as company gets older, uh, product managers spend more time going around in what I call building spreadsheet, talking to teams, gathering the feedback. Um, and at like, you know, once you get to kind of a, a mid-market, kind of mid-stage company, you end up spending about a quarter of your week doing that. Um, so I think that ends up being kind of a treadmill people get trapped on. And what I generally find is successful is like, hey, let's think of all the time you're using just collecting feedback and let's stop that for a week or two and have you go write a process for here's how the feedback is going to collect itself. Um, and that's really been pretty successful to be able to go to people's, you know, people to go to their boss and be like, look, we need to have this data set. I spend this much time already just building all the time. We need to, but I only get feedback from 2% of our users. That does not allow me to de-risk our roadmap in the way that allows us to get to the right answers quicker. You can never tell whether the decision was right or not. So it's all about how can we de-risk it and make it done more quickly. So if you don't have a good process in place for collecting and using data, you have to find the time to make one, right? Maybe going meeting free for a couple of weeks, you can buy you the time you need to build this process out. Yeah. And, and look, there are many different ways that you can build that process. In fact, that's probably another topic we could spend an entire episode or maybe even a whole season on. Yeah, really. But regardless, the big takeaway here is that if you don't have a well-defined process for collecting and using data, you should probably make that happen quickly. Okay. Well, let's let's go back a bit. Earlier, you said there were two points that Rich was making about data. The first was about process, uh, but the second... Yeah, he mentioned having emotional debates with higher-ups. Right. Okay. And that data can be useful in these debates. We see a lot of people kind of try to build better process and structure around, hey, I want to be able to defend my decisions. Sometimes I find it's not even making data-informed decisions product people. It's defending the decisions you already want, like are trying to make and explain to the rest of the company, either up or adjacent departments, why we're doing the things we're doing. And honestly, it's something I think as product people, we do often a poor job of. It's what I call showing our work. Here's why we're building these three things and not these three things. Here's the framework by which we kind of like adjudicated that. And does that ring true with you, Michael? Uh, yeah. Well, the part about needing to arm yourself with information when discussing an idea with others, whether it be executives or even team members. Sure. Yeah. Otherwise, the decision is purely opinion based. Um, I might have an opinion, but the others... They're going to have their own opinion. And how do we find a resolution there? Who says who is right? Unless you have the data to back it up. Exactly. Okay. So speaking of other team members, we shouldn't forget as product people that the rest of our team can actually be one of the biggest resources for us in terms of collecting the data we need. I think there's very much a, a need for a good process or a good conduit from like what people are seeing on the front lines, whether it's customers directly or any customer facing teams, to be able to feed feedback back to the product team. Almost everyone on the front lines wants to influence product. They want to be helpful. They're there, they're seeing customers struggle with things or seeing customers need things that aren't there. Um, how, however, usually the way in which they feed feedback back to us as product is very unhelpful. We get like a list of like, here's our top 10 asks. It's like a spreadsheet and it's like paraphrased and we've lost track of, you know, who said it, why they said it, da 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 da. Uh, and to me, that's one part of the whole system that we deploy to basically funnel all feedback in the York back to one place so the product can look at that, both for the exercise I just mentioned, like de-risking impacts, 
we also use it like when we go say, hey, we're going to go build this. We want to know who to follow up with very quickly to you know vet mockups and prototypes. So one of the things we do a lot, we do this our product, but you can also just process this with Google Forms or, or, or Salesforce custom objects is we always want feedback, I call it not from our customer facing teams, but through our customer facing teams. So we create a system where instead of them coming up with a spreadsheet of asks every month or buggies in the hallway or forwarding us emails, we give them a system where anytime you hear feedback, you can give it to products. We only ask two things, an option, a third, right? Who said it, exactly what they said. Um, and if you don't mind, like organize it into this larger concept of something you've heard, right? Maybe it's a feature you've asked for before um, and send that on to product. And then we can interleave all that stuff together. So whether it came in from support, whether it came in from success or sales or you know, directly from the customer, we can weave all that stuff together into one single view for us a product. And for us, you know, I do this thing whenever I give talks about, I give a whole talk about like different methodologies for how to get feedback from internal teams in a B2B environment. I always ask people like, what percentage of your customers do you think you hear from, right? 1% and like 5%. I go up and I have people keep their hands up until, and usually somewhere around like 10% uh, people's hands go down, right? Most companies I've talked to, it's like, they're lucky if they have feedback from 10% of their customers. Through this process, we have feedback from 60% of our customers at any given time. And so at that point, like, it makes us very confident in the decisions that we make because we know, you know, you don't have to worry about representativeness at that point, and you know you've got reasonably good scale. But the only way we get to that high of number is everyone in the org has a part to play in feeding this into us so that we can make the best product decisions. But then we can also, our our contract with those teams is if you feed this into us, we will communicate back to you. Here's the decisions we made based on what you fed to us. And again, that goes back to the, we'll show our work of, great, here's your impact. And here's why this thing ended up being ranked fourth. And here's other team's impacts. Okay. I have to admit, I am kind of getting a little stressed out here. I mean, we're, we're talking about how important data is, but what kind of data should we actually try to capture and use? And should it be quantitative, qualitative? Even if we honed in on one, what kind of qualitative data? What kind of quantitative data? Should it be all of the things? I mean... Okay, okay, relax. It's it's going to be okay. <laughs> all right, I know. It's just getting a little overwhelmed here, Michael. It's all going to be okay. Okay, okay. I am taking deep breaths. The, the reality is it's probably going to depend, right? That's true. I mean, it's going to be different for each company. And I actually remember Rich saying something that like the difference is probably based on what each company's goals are. If, you're, if your goal is winning new business or increasing ASP, you need to be looking at feedback from prospective customers. If the goal is you know, retention, then it's prospective customers and functionality and things like that and some concept of severity. Um, we always say our, our thought on that is capture everything because the goals shift a lot and you want to be able, okay, this quarter turns out we need to have this lens on the data. Let's focus on this segment of the customers. But I guarantee you next quarter is going to be this other segment. And we can't just then say, oh, crap, now we got to get feedback from that segment. We need to be gathering it. There are other types of feedback like UX and things like this that that one can can be used at the strategy part of the workflow, but also can be worked later down, right? As like, we've decided to go build this. There's a different feedback loop for it. We've decided to go build this. How do we get feedback on various solutions, right? That's a different kind of problem set. Um, if you're talking about how do we, uh, how do we basically uh, compare functionality, we need missing functionality to the usability is bad to maybe the reliability is bad. Um, I point you to an interesting talk uh, by a guy named Sean Kramer, uh, who was the head of VOC at Atlassian now to Amazon. He does this framework called Rough, where they take all of their feedback, just all types of feedback, 
and, and categorize it as reliability, usability, and functionality. Uh, and his basic takeaway is if the majority of your feedback is reliability focused, right, the thing doesn't work, it's buggy, it's crashing, it's slow, do not pass go, you have to fix that. If the majority of your feedback is usability focused, I can't find it. And this, you can look at this kind of in support volumes too, then you need to focus on that. Um, and if you've ticked both of those boxes, then functionality is where you look for, for upside, right? Um, so that's, but that's very much with the lens of existing customers, right? You already have to have a view that like our key goal right now is retaining customers. And in a lot of companies, it's attracting new ones, which is why making the case for usability gets really hard in those scenarios, right? It's hard to compete with, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna reduce support volumes and get slightly better outcomes in NPS scores because usability is better versus we're gonna go build these two features which are linked to 200K of new MRR. What was the framework that Rich mentioned? It, it was from Sean Kramer and the framework, I think it was called Ruff, like mm. R-U-F-F. Um, and I, I actually created a, a link to the presentation that Sean gave on this. Uh, people could check it out at bit.ly slash Sean Kramer. That's S-E-A-N-C-R-A-M-E-R uh, and go all lowercase just in case. Oh, sweet. Well, that's definitely something to check out. But with all this talk about data and feedback, I do think it'd be a mistake if we didn't talk about one important thing. Yeah. How do we know what to actually do with the data? All right. That's that's a good point. Because let's face it, the data is only as valuable as the actions that you take with it. But acting on something, especially in the form of launching a new product or feature, takes time. That takes effort, resources. It's an investment. Yeah, and you have to figure out whether it's worth making any sort of investment in the first place. Rich gets into this a little bit here. Zynga used to always, the way they do stuff for Farmville, right, is they get in a room and they come up with like 50 ideas and then they have analysts go basically figure out predicted whiff and churn. Also, like all the effects they think of these things will have, they would come with engineering costs, they would stack rank based on that, they go build, and then they come back two weeks later and say, here's exactly what happened. And I have some, seen some people that try to like take that and try to replicate that too early. And it's like, okay, we're going to spend a lot of time trying to figure out all the impacts of something before we go build something. And there is such a thing as, you know, one of our core values here is like perfect is the enemy of done, right? And so there is a bit of that. Um, I actually like to think about feedback and, and you, know, you know, bundling up feedback into data as a way to de-risk decisions, right? And so what we do is here's all of the things we think will impact. We've got two goals, right? And here's the big kind of, here's, we've got, we basically took, I think this go around, we took 16 problems. We had 16 problems, which are linked to about 100 ideas that we solicited from customers, either through our support team or directly through them or from the sales team. And then those 16 problems, we assign kind of a weight to them of like, here's the impact we think it'll have on this goal or this goal. We had two goals. And then we were able to line up basically the data from our sales team. Like here's what the sales team is seeing. So one of our goals was around prospective customers. And one of our other goals was around retention. So we were, here's the feedback we're seeing basically from the success support from existing customers. And by putting those numbers beside it, we were able to point out, oh, there's a few problems on this list where we, which we thought had a high impact, but there isn't a lot of customer demand evident in the feedback. That doesn't mean that we're wrong about the impact, but caused us to go do more research. And the flip side was true on a few things too, where we didn't think this was, was super impactful, but there was a lot of demand for it from the customer base which made us go back and reevaluate our estimates. So, and so that's one of the biggest ways we go kind of de-risk our decisions, not just inform them. So let's recap this chat with Rich and boil it down to one big takeaway from each one of us. Is that, is that cool, Michael? Yeah, let's do it. What's yours? Okay. Well, mine would be 
I would say, even though sometimes process can be a bad word to some, especially me, <laughs> it is important when it comes to collecting data from customers. Everybody's process is going to be different for sure, but there's no magic bullet in terms of what's coming up with the best process everybody can use. Regardless, though, you should have a process in place to collect both quantitative and qualitative data. For me, I'd say that we should realize that our entire company and customer base are all candidates to collect data for us. So a part of that process that you mentioned should be empowering these groups, creating a culture that enables everyone to be a part of the process of collecting data. The more empowered that everybody feels on this front, it's also more likely that they'll be engaged in the process to build a better product. I think that's a great one. And Rocket Ship listeners, we're wrapping up this episode, but what's your takeaway? Let us know. We're both on Twitter. You could feel free to add us. I'm at Belcito. And Michael, I think you're at Michael Saka. Is that right? That's right. And we've also got at Rocket Ship FM. That's right. So let us know and we will catch you next week for an episode on mental models and Charlie Munger's original thoughts on the whole mental model discussion. So stay tuned. Thank you so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. It's your support that keeps the show going. Rocketship.fm is now part of the Podglomerate Network. If you want to learn more about the other shows on the Podglomerate Network, go to thepodglomerate.com. Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product people. If you go to productcollective.com, you can check out live video interviews, sign up for our newsletter, be a part of our Slack group with over 6,000 product people. Just check it out at productcollective.com.